The inaugural Isle of Man Government Policy Conference gave a fascinating insight into government's thinking and its draft economic strategy. This week, Perspective focuses on day two of the conference in which we hear about housing, brownfield development, broadening government's tax base and how to expand the Manx economy. I began by asking Treasury Minister Alex Allenson, isn't this just more of the same? Well, one of the things I did during the presentation was actually thank the people who come before me because they built up fairly healthy reserves on the Isle of Man, which was served us well through what is now our third year of rainy days. But when we're talking about sustainable public finance, it means that we will keep those reserves, we will maintain that stability at a time when Treasury is under more financial pressure than perhaps ever before. We've gone through covid um, the Isle of Man government spent about £230 million supporting the local economy and people of the island. We're now going through another period of high inflation, of high energy costs, which are affecting government as well as um, individual homeowners, households and businesses as well. And we've already said that we will help out without freezing electricity prices. So I think it is key to actually stand up and say, we are spending huge amounts of money, but we will do this appropriately, we will do this responsibly, and we will make sure that the public purse remains available to actually um, fulfil some of the ambitions, both in the island plan and the economic strategy as well. I mean, you, you talk about spending money responsibly and sustainably. Uh, does that mean that previous governments have been reckless in the way they spent the money? No, they, they haven't, but we have had some um, serious concerns about the way public money is being spent, particularly in terms of infrastructure projects. So part of um, the, the, the presentations later today are looking at planning, are looking at how we deal with the built infrastructure, how we deal with major infrastructure projects run by Isle of Man government. But key to the economic strategy is using government funds to leverage private, in, um, private investment in the Isle of Man. And that's where the sort of £100 million of government funding to create a billion pounds of overall investment comes into the picture. Can you give any sort of detail as to how that's, uh, that's actually going to work? Part of it is the sort of engagement we're doing at the government conference to actually instill both con- consumer confidence in the Isle Man's future, but also business confidence in the Isle Man's future, that we are open for business at a time of volatility and instability right the way around the world. We are a welcoming environment both to grow the businesses that are here, but also encourage new businesses to set up here. And using the, the tools that we have as a small jurisdiction in terms of changing legislation where we need to, but also being responsive in terms of a government. There, I can't imagine anywhere else where you can, you know, in a coffee queue, pigeonhole various ministers, including the chief minister, and have a chat with them. It's that um, availability of people in government, whether they're civil servants or government ministers, um, to entrepreneurs, to the business community, to the local public, that I think is key to our long-term success. And availability is one thing. But uh, I, I think um, certainly many people in the private sector, and I'm, I'm probably, uh, I think it's fair to say, a number of uh, ministers, members of Timwald, uh, would share this frustration. The government is, is not that good at can-do. Uh, it, it, you know, the, there seems to be a huge amount of bureaucracy standing in the way of the good ideas, the innovation, the things that you and your government is, is, is trying to support. 
I mean, part of that is the democratic process. So we're having a, a consultation on the economic strategy that will then be de um, debated in November Timwald. That is a process we absolutely have to take part in. But I, I think you're right that the future role of government is to enable, but also to step back when it's getting in the way. That's why consistently over the last couple of years when, when I've been working um, as a minister, particularly in Department for Enterprise, People were telling me there's too much red tape, there's too many blocks on people who want to do the right thing. So that's why we definitely need to look at things like planning, how we um, develop our infrastructure on the island, but at the same time, not railroad processes, night planning appeals, so that we don't upset the people living on our islands at the moment. Progress shouldn't just be for progress's sake. It has to be for the benefit for everyone who's already here and the um, active working population we want to encourage to come back here or to relocate here from elsewhere. One of the things that you said which made me gasp, uh, really, and, and perhaps it's just because I've, I've never heard it said out loud before um, Treasury's new system whereby departments can decide what their priorities are I mean anyone listening to that would say well surely to goodness that, that should have been happening all along I think in, in the past we've had um, a system that, that, that I've been part of in, in, in terms of when I was in the Department of Home Affairs and, and later in the Department for Enterprise where individual departments would come with bids and it was a bit like a beauty contest they'd come to treasury with a whole lot of wish lists things on a wish list and then that would be um, you know bargained down so that they might if they were lucky get one or two of them and what that meant was that um, ministers and officers spent huge amounts of time um, trying to appeal to treasury's um, sense of humor sometimes and and best best interests in terms of how they develop government um, departmental policies what we're now doing under the, this administration is setting quite clearly the priorities of government through the island plan and the economic strategy, then allocating resources to departments and saying, look, can you get on and do the job? One of the, the, the things that's different about this administration is every year those departments are going to have to come back to Timwald and to the people of this island with basically um, a, a, a course book, an annual report, what we've done in the last year, what money we've spent, what outcomes we've provided, and that will be scrutinised. And so it's trying to give the, that responsibility to the individual ministers and the departments to deliver. Because I think you're, you're right in one of, the, one of your, your previous comments, um, government needs to deliver. People need to see the outcomes and the benefits to them of all the, the talk that we do, of all the strategies we do. That's what people want to see. And that's what I think we, as, as, as the Council of Ministers and this government, are committed to delivering. You're talking about broadening the tax base. Uh, it's fair to say that uh, you got a, um, a, a, a mixed reception um, at the uh, discussion on tax uh, yesterday. Uh, wh what exactly does broadening the tax base mean? We know that, that the revenue of the Alamant government is predominantly from people, from working people. We tax income rather than wealth. We tax people rather than companies, and there's good reasons for that, and that's done us well. But we're now reaching a point where we want to invest in the future, where we want to rebalance our, the demographics of our population, and to do that we will need to make changes. So one of the things that we are doing is giving the stability and the confidence in the current taxation system, but we're looking more broadly in terms of international developments, in terms of corporation tax, and how we would apply those when they happen. And we've been working with 
um, Jersey and Guernsey to have a consolidated and united front that we would all move forward in exactly the same way as we agreed with beneficial ownership. So, you know, a threat to one is a threat to all, but we would move forward with the international com- community. And I think by doing that, we can broaden that tax base, but in a way that doesn't threaten those businesses that are already here, that doesn't threaten their prosperity at a time when they are under pressure. So it was interesting that when I, I gave the presentation about taxation, it was almost a fill full house. I think people were were worried I might let loose on on some brand new strategy. There isn't. I mean, the sustainable financial position of the Isle of Man is around low corporation tax, is around low income tax, but is looking in the future and being realistic that we cannot continue to um, tax individuals, that we need to give them the leeway, more money in their pocket to spend in the local economy. And by by the the way to do that is by broadening the tax base and take taxation from other sectors. But that has yet to be decided and that will be part of a widespread taxation consultation that will be launched in next year's budget. One of the areas which we are told is, is off the table, completely off the table, is rate reform, local government reform for that matter. And yet in neighbouring countries, uh, Ireland, the UK, local taxation is a, a significant por- par- portion of the overall uh, uh, tax take, the overall uh, income that's generated to pay for government services. Why, why is rates just being completely ignored by this administration? I don't think it's being ignored, but is it one of the key priorities? We, we want and need a rate system that is fairer, easier to under- understand. We also want local government to be both democratically accountable to the people who put them there, but also provide those local services in a reactive and responsive way. I think what we're doing at the moment is looking at the best way of achieving those outcomes for people. I would advocate that properly funded local government who are clear in terms of their priorities can deliver better services rather than constantly rearranging the the deck chairs on, on, on the deck of the boat. I think previous administrations have tied themselves up in terms of rates reform. It's not off the table at the moment, but it's not one of the key priorities for this year to take forward under this administration. One of the areas that was uh, certainly attracting some attention from the questions uh, that that you were were receiving earlier uh, was public sector pensions. Uh, It is fair to say that those who don't receive public sector pensions or, or are unlikely to receive public sector pensions view this as a wholly outdated uh, concept and uh, wholly unaffordable for the Manx economy. Uh, I mean, you, you did your best to, to, to respond to that, but surely surely, the way in which we uh, provide public sector pensions it, it isn't sustainable. There are two nuggets that will often come up at public discussions in terms of finance. One is about tax caps, the other is about public sector pensions, and both have been addressed by previous administrations and will consistently be addressed. We've already made significant changes to the public sector pensions to make them far more affordable for the taxpayer. We've also introduced different schemes for new starters, with defined contribution being offered as well as defined benefits. But we need that long-term sustainability to provide those pensions to the people who've worked very hard providing key areas such as health, education, um, 
police force in the past and are currently bought into the scheme. I believe that by growing our economy in the way that we've set out in the economic plan, not only are public sector pensions affordable, but they're sustainable in, in the long term. But we will continue to make sure of that. Next year, we've got another actuarial review. We've got more details in terms of cost-sharing arrangements between government and employees. And we will continue to develop this to give long-term confidence that the schemes we've got are sustainable and affordable. Certainly one of the uh, bits of advice that I I recall being given uh, when I was in Council of Ministers was that uh, increased inflation rates actually were a good thing in relation to the affordability of public sector pensions, that uh, when when, uh, inflation is flatlining... Uh, that's the time that uh, it becomes more of a, a, a of an issue. Uh, so presumably that's one of the few um, uh, sort of uh, silver linings of the large cloud which is soaring uh, costs of uh, living. I, I, nobody wants inflation. I, 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 I'm very grateful for you for finding some silver lining with what we're going through at the moment. Yes, when you look at long-term projections, inflation does eat into savings, but also eats into some of the long-term commitments. Um, Money is worth less in the future, therefore it doesn't seem as much. Inflation does very strange things when you look over several decades. Right here, right now, it is hurting people. It's also hurting government. Our our fuel bill for the buses going around our our towns and, and, and city are now double what they were at the start of the year. And we need to adjust and adapt to what may be a prolonged period of increased energy costs. And that's one of the things that will be developed further in in Timwell debates, both now and over the coming months. Laurie Hooper was just a day into the role of Enterprise Minister when I caught up with him at the conference. So basically we just ran quickly through the, the pillars of the economic strategy, talking about the, the main aims, uh, and then uh, the main focus really was a Q&A session. I didn't want to be on stage talking to people, telling them things they already knew. It was really an opportunity to engage with people in the audience and, and ask, uh, get, well, let them ask questions and actually try and answer some of the, the more difficult questions that, that are coming forward. And it was a good session, actually. seems really well attended. Uh, some uh, good questions coming from the floor actually covering everything from you know the visitor economy and how we encourage tourists to come here through to cost of living and how do we support local business and small business uh, versus right at the other end of the scale with some of our international and more digitally enabled uh, pieces of work that are going on so it, quite an interesting session actually and some interesting challenges i mean what, what one of the the, the, the questions the, the later questions that you had was in relation to the image portrayed in the advertising perhaps not being met by the reality particularly in terms of many uh, businesses shops closing down in the t- in town centres yeah part of that i think is, is is a natural trend as you know people move more to online shopping it's it's harder to maintain a physical presence uh, it's definitely something we can do there part of the challenges we have on the island as well is split responsibilities and so you will see with local authorities being responsible for some things and government being responsible for others uh, different areas have different responses uh, you know you're talking about sort of dilapidated buildings or properties that maybe aren't contributing to the amenity of an area and in some places local authorities quite proactive and they try and tackle those issues in other areas the local authorities are much more reactive much more reliant on government stepping in and so you do have a bit of a a postcode lottery in some respects with some of that but there's loads we can do to work with people uh, to work with local authorities to make sure they've got the powers they need to enforce some of these things to make sure planning law works for everybody so that if businesses do want to invest in doing up their shop fronts and making sure of course we've got regeneration schemes and grants there to help people when they they want to do those things as well so uh, definitely a fair challenge to come from the floor on that Uh, it's something that government knows about that we acknowledge and that we do have plans in place to try and help resolve and of course 
a lot of this economic uh, strategy that we're hearing about uh, in, in this conference uh, is, is very much dependent on your department actually getting its act together and uh, properly engaging with the private sector to ensure that we have a thriving economy, a robust economy, a sustainable economy. Uh, what are the key things do you think that needs to change in the department to make this happen? So I think you're mistaken there. It's not the department necessarily that's the challenge. So as I, I talked about a little bit on stage today and yesterday in one of the Q&As, a lot of the challenges that I think we're facing are not actually inside DfE itself. Uh, so the Department for Enterprise has really good working relationships with the private sector. You'll have heard the agencies talk about some of the work they're doing. And actually, that side of things is great. Uh, but the most important question from the floor was from Martin Perkins. And he asked the question, well, actually, what are we doing as a government to make sure we're prioritizing some of this stuff? And that's going to be the hardest thing and that's what the economic strategy talks about it says we need to shift away from the way we've always done business on the Isle of Man and actually start saying well everything we do needs to be driving towards this goal of having a sustainable economy of having well-paid jobs of having uh, sustainable growth and making sure people can afford to live on the Isle of Man and actually everything needs to come back to that strategy and so what we need to start asking ourselves when we're spending public money when we're debating things in turn world when government is deciding on its priorities the fundamental question we need to ask ourselves as a government as a parliament is is this going to help improve people's quality of life is this going to help improve uh, more money in people's pockets or reduce their energy bills or improve the issues around cost of living and if the answer to those questions is no if it's not going to support our economic strategy if it's not going to support the development of the health service or our education service then we have to ask ourselves why are we doing it and I think that's going to be the hardest thing for government and for Tim Wall to to do actually is to take a step back from some of the the smaller issues the pet projects the, the little things and say actually if this isn't helping drive our economy forward if this isn't where we see the island in 15 years we are going to have to start saying no we're sorry we're not doing that anymore and that, that I think is going to be the, the hardest thing to do. So effectively what you're saying is everyone else needs to change but the department is, is fine? No, the department's a part of that as well, absolutely. Uh, and uh, like I said on the stage, the agencies themselves are quite good at saying no to things. They're quite good at prioritising themselves. They understand that when working with public finances, perhaps more so actually than the public sector, they understand that there's only a limited amount of resource to go around. And so they're very keen that when they do bring a business case forward to the department or to Treasury or to wherever it is, that they know that it's robust, that they aren't asking for more than they need, that they already have gone through a process of saying no to a lot of other things that maybe aren't a priority. So no, it definitely is a case of the government as a whole, and I say parliament as a whole, it's, it's not singling out any particular areas or, or departments, it's saying actually we all need to acknowledge that this needs to be the single focus of, of the government, and that's exactly what the economic strategy talks about. Should those of us who, who are passionate about heritage and culture be concerned that there is no reference to it in the strategy and there has been no reference, and I think that, that there's, there's no obvious place for there to be a reference in, in this conference. Um, does, is, is that one of the areas that government has decided is no longer a priority? No, not at all. I'd encourage you to come along to the visit spotlight session uh, later on this afternoon. I think we have the uh, CEO of Max Heritage uh, sitting on that panel and ask that question directly. Uh, no, 
heritage and culture is a, is a phenomenally important part of the island offering uh, in terms of quality of life. You know, would you live here if we didn't have such a, a great uh, a cultural and, and heritage offer? Possibly not. You know, if we want to attract visitors, there's definitely a core market there of people that come here for, for the uniqueness of the island. And so, no, it, it absolutely is a fundamental part of what we do. And, and that's really the, the point that I'm trying to make is we need to acknowledge some of these things. I mean, the arts is another a big question. You know, you'll always, we're in the villa right now. And for years, government has always talked about the villa as, oh, it costs us money. It's, it's cost the taxpayer. Actually, it isn't. It's an investment in our arts, in our culture. It's really important that we carry on doing these things. But it's about making that point and making that point quite explicitly sometimes and saying there is value in what we're doing and then tying that value back to is this the right thing to be doing for the island? And if it is, we should double down on it, absolutely. But if it turns out that what we're investing in actually isn't generating the sort of returns that we like to think it is, if it isn't uh, improving the island in any way, that's when we need to start having those conversations. Is there anything that you're saying that previous enterprise ministers or economic development ministers wouldn't have said in the past? And, and if so, uh, you know, uh, you know if, if what you are effectively saying is what everyone else has said, how are we going to actually see the, the, the fairly dramatic change that is going to be required? So I think that everything that I've said wouldn't have been said in the past. I don't think there's ever been a proper acknowledgement that we need to start pushing at that single objective, the tying things back. There's always been a nervousness, I think, to have honest conversations about heritage and culture uh, and about job growth. You know, uh, minimum wage conversations, for example, have been very difficult to have uh, over the years, uh, simply because there's two sides to that coin, work permits and our immigration policy. We need to have honest conversations about these. If we're going to attract people to the island, do we have issues in terms of you know, uh, residency requirements or work permit requirements? Are we attracting the right people in the right age groups, for example? That's another part of the strategy around economic rebalancing and population rebalancing. So I think a lot of these conversations would probably have been had behind closed doors and they would have been going on in the background. I don't think we're reinventing the wheel here with the strategy, but what we are doing is talking about it openly. In four years' time, chances are that you'll be uh, standing... Uh, again, uh, as a member of the House of Keys, or, or to become a member of the House of Keys, what are you go- do you think you're going to be able to point to as your achievements as Enterprise Minister over the course of the next uh, three and a half, four years? Uh, so I think as the last few weeks have shown, uh, I might not be in this job in four years' time. Politics is an ever-changing beast. Um, but I think the economic strategy that's out for consultation now, it'll have to go through Timwald, it'll be approved, hopefully, and that will give us those key aims and key metrics as to what we think we should be doing. Uh, so in four years, uh, I'd like to think we'll know how many jobs have we created, how many houses have we built, how many uh, people are now better off than they were at the start of the administration. Have we done the things the island plan said that we should be doing? Have we aligned the minimum wage with the living wage? All those kind of questions, I think, should be... We should be able to point to and say we've, we've succeeded and I'd like to think that actually all Timwald members are in the same boat that whenever you're standing for election or for re-election you can point to what you wanted to do in your manifesto and what you said you were going to do in your department or on your scrutiny committee or on your statutory board or whichever job it is you happen to hold and be able to point back to well actually these are the things I said I was going to do and, and this is what I achieved so I think that question is, is valid for any member of Timwald to say well actually what are you trying to achieve over the next five years and then actually when you're standing for election to point back to those things and say well this is what I did and it's up to the voters then to decide whether that was good enough. Chris Thomas leads the Housing Board and as DOI Minister is well placed to respond to the housing crisis but has government done enough since the election? I think so we certainly couldn't have done more as yet what we've done perhaps divide it into two parts the first part is we've changed the shared equity purchase assistance scheme there's now no limit to the budget effectively I'm told we've changed the eligibility criteria we've made it more flexible and apply if you meet those criteria 
that's one thing. We've also modified the um, social security system in terms of budgeting loans, reversing a change that was made back in 2014 to help people stay in property when they fall on hard times. And we've also... Uh, we, we've also secured the future for our emergency shelter till, uh, till March 2023 when we will have a new system of supported living housing first in place and that's well in train. The second part of what we've done is we've prepared things for bringing into force the landlord um, le legislation about standards at some point in the future, a couple of years away perhaps, alongside a new deposit system and an arbitration system. We've also begun what we've called an empty properties initiative because it's a, it's, a, it's a shame, in fact it's even neglectful, to have so many empty properties, whether they're dilapidated or used as holiday accommodation or they're just unfit for habitation lying around. We've got to do something about that. So, And, and, and sadly, it's, it's almost... Uh, to people's economic advantage uh, in, in some cases just to leave the properties empty at the moment. So, so how are, is government going to actually uh, move these properties? We, we don't need to invent the wheel. There's lots of options that are there. Some of them have been thought about in the past in the Isle of Man but haven't been implemented. Around us in Wales and Scotland, parts of England, they are implementing things. So it's to do with looking at the, uh, at the rating system, looking at the tax system, looking at providing grants appropriately to help people bring things back into use. So I think we understand the situation now with the 5,800 census night vacant properties and the 200 or so dilapidated properties and the 2,000 or so that nobody's paying any electricity bill on. I think we understand the situation now. Now we need to come up with policy responses and try it and see and see if we can do something about it. And, and of course the, the thing that I as a journalist and I imagine many people as uh, taxpayers, ratepayers, voters uh, will be thinking is uh, okay we, we, we hear the talk we want to actually start seeing uh, real delivery. Chief Minister alluded to, to that in his closing remarks for the conference. Do you think uh, we're going to see uh, quite dramatic change over the course of the next three to four years? Uh, yeah, I, I do think so, and we're already seeing it. So during the COVID period, no affordable homes were built for various reasons. We've now got 70 that are, um, that are there in construction, nearly about ready to be finished, another 70 or so that are um, in planning, and we've got another 170 beyond that that will come forward in planning, it, it seems. So that's affordable houses the moment the current rate of building houses is 600 a year which is more than twice what it's ever been in any year over the last 10 years so that's a number to get hold of and I've given you some figures about empty properties and it would be a crying shame and neglectful if we haven't brought some of those empty properties back in into into use we also need uh, to reflect on how our social housings are used and I announced in the conference today that we're beginning a series of, of engagement with the housing managers clerks commissioners and councillors about our social housing stock and and I also talked about our Colby mid-rent pilot, which goes back to your time as Minister uh, of Infrastructure. You know, it's a really helpful scheme, potentially. I think it could be transformational. And it basically means that for a period of your life, you can save because you're paying 80% of market rent, market rent levels rather than 100% of market rent levels. We also need to help people in social housing be able to save. So we're looking at thresholds and the way we deal with wealth during that period of people's lives. Watching from the sidelines were MHK's John Wallenberg and Andrew Smith. I think it's going well. Uh, the fact that we're holding it, which was one of Mr Cannon's um, promises when he became Chief Minister, was to engage more robustly with the public. He's, he's certainly delivering on that promise. Um, there was lots of engagement to be had. 
uh, people need to come along and ask the questions they need to ask. And some of the questions I've, I've heard being asked are, are pretty good. Um, certainly better than some of the answers, to be honest. Um, but yes, I, I think government has an obligation to put itself in front of the public and make it easy for them to come along. And, and whilst it's not on a weekend, it, you know, it, it is still here. And, and if people feel strongly enough about something, they'll come along and find out. Andrew Smith, uh, obviously you've, your particular specialist area of interest was on uh, first thing, the Treasury Minister was uh, uh, speaking. Um, what, what's your reaction so far to the co- uh, conference? Yeah, well, obviously I believe that we're, we are on the right track. Um, a lot of people say, well, you would say that. But uh, in fairness, you know, we have got to take this long-term view. Um, we've got a lot of challenges, as we all know. And uh, we are trying to have a pragmatic uh, take on things as well. And uh, we've had a good, I believe it's been exceptionally good, to engage with the public and uh, to hear those challenging questions and also to hear the answers that the ministers and other senior civil servants are giving to say, well, yeah, yeah, we are all behind our island plan and the economic strategy and we're looking to deliver. And the thing is that we've held this conference specifically for people to engage and I want them to hold us to uh, account, be accountable and uh, demonstrate that we are trying to be transparent. And uh, the other thing that I did impress on a lot of people that I spoke to yesterday and already today is that this we've opened the tap now for this open dialogue and it's not a case of the doors will close on the the conference this inaugural conference tonight and we shut that type that that tap remains open for ongoing two-way dialogue so that we can continue to engage with the public and say well hang on a minute we need a slight change of direction or policy and that's what we need to hear immediately from them as we are progressing on this journey of our island plan of national interest together have you heard anything at the conference that has surprised you or that you thought, actually, yes, that's a really fantastic uh, bit of information? Well, I, I think today when I heard one or two um, questions in the last session and I'm still disappointed that people are trying to come to the island and being challenged by opening bank I can't. I cannot believe for international financial centre of such standing with the ratings that we have from the um, monetary agencies that people still can't get a bank a simple bank account with, with within an acceptable period and that that that's disturbed me today for one thing i know there are other challenges regarding housing which we'll be looking at more in detail this afternoon but that's just a simple thing we're saying why can't I just walk into a bank i know that there's more um detail required regarding proof of identity for people coming from foreign lands but come on can we not speed that process and at least show that we are welcoming and we actually put that welcome into practice within the regulation and legislation for opening a bank account, simple thing like that. And of course, it's not just people uh, from a, a, across. Um, it's, it's hard enough, uh, even even if you're a Manx person trying to trying to get a, a new bank account um, or, or get uh, uh, signatories changed. Uh, John Warnerberger, uh, was, was there anything uh, that you've you've heard today that you weren't familiar with? Any any new messaging that you think is? I think it's slightly new. But what I don't know, as, as Andrew just mentioned, there are certain frustrations. For instance, he mentions bank accounts. I would say uh, fiber connectivity. Now, if we want to attract the kind of people that we are aiming to attract in the next 15 years, then we really have to have solid infrastructure. And that means interconnectivity. You know, people are going to come from sophisticated jurisdictions. They're going to come to the island and they're going to expect the same level of service. 
and, and if we can't provide that, they will go elsewhere. Um, and the people we have here already, we need to provide the core infrastructure already, not just to attract more. I mean, people are, have invested in, in our island already. They need to have what they need to grow um, rather than uh, attracting more people, which we do need to do, but let's look after what we've got at the moment. Henry Murison, Chief Executive of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership, and Cabinet Office Minister Kate Lord Brennan had a lot to say about redeveloping our urban environment. Yes, and I think you know, it's thing that's been talked about for a long time to the importance, but the, the difference is now um, is that the government has absolutely got the focus and got its act together in terms of the specific programme measures that would help achieve that through the Built Environment Reform Programme. Um, the difference with that has been centrally coordinated, led by Cabinet Office, um, you know, coordinated across government, both in the development and, you know, ultimately how it be delivered. And, it, you know, it's got a budget attached to it in order to, to do that and address a whole range of issues that are really um, been holding things up, holding people back. Just want to kind of un- unlock the opportunities within those specific actions. And, uh, you know, it, it's really good that something that started at the beginning of the administration from a sort of political priority and aspiration from the chief minister um, when we were talking about the island plan, is, has got to the stage where you know that's all um, fully proned out, funded. We've got a clear set of actions for a two-year reform programme, and then today we've been able to announce, importantly, the launch of a major applications process in planning, um, the creation of a customer charter, and also getting out that feedback. Um, we're asking people for feedback about the planning process to try and address some of the issues that, that you know we hear quite often as MHKs. Uh, we hear about those things so um, it's, it's good that we've got to that point really and I think that that and the panel that we had um, provided some really really interesting discussion and being no doubt there is real commitment on this from government. Because we have heard for years and years and years about brownfield sites that needs to be developed and what tends to happen is uh, planning will, will say that this needs to happen and then maybe the the, the whichever government department might own the site has its priorities and then someone else comes in with maybe the highways with different priorities and the person actually doing the development then turns around and says actually you know what I've got more better things to do with my life than wait around for government to decide amongst itself uh, what, what it's going to agree to and what it's going to do so so how how is that going to change? Well, for, for obviously for major applications, that becomes even more important because if there's big projects, you know, and, and big investment at stake, people you know, need to not be, be sent round the houses by different parts of government. It is exactly as you've captured it there. But through this major applications process, the idea is that um, it would be about getting the, the right people from the different aspects of government around the table at the right time, identifying issues early on, and then crucially resolving things, um, you know, rather than have um, sort of different opinions as you've said, come up from different departments, to try and, and, and get that proposal to be in a much fitter place in order to, to gain you know, a positive outcome from a planning application. And, and that's what it's really all, ab- all about. So I guess for major things, it's almost sort of like a concierge service to try and, and, and ha- handhold those early stage um, projects. And that, in turn, should give you know, confidence to for people to bring things forward, but also confidence for the investors that they think, okay, right, if it's a major project, that is the route, that is the imperative, and it's clearly important to get some of these issues unblocked and projects off the ground. Henry uh, Murison, you, you must be familiar with what we're hearing uh, here, but of course, 
in, in your terms, you, you have much larger uh, institutions with much, much bigger uh, budgets that you, you work with, um, but perhaps with, with less power uh, than maybe the Isle of Man government has. I think we were discussing, what we were, I mean, in the, in the conference earlier, the kind of the challenges around kind of institutions and place. So the, the fundamental problem is that if you are remote from what's going on in a particular locality, how do you get a grip of those issues? And I think removing some of those barriers between institutions is a Whitehall problem as well. So the extent to which you allude to, do departments have their own kind of fiefdoms, their own interests? That's something we recognise from the Whitehall system. And ironically, one of the purposes of creating devolved authorities was to get more joined-up policymaking. Because historically, in, in central government... Um, the assets of, of big departments had not necessarily been used the way local areas would want. An example would be in a city like York, one of the places I work in and know very well, the local army barracks is key to developing and delivering housing in a place that is absolutely desperately crying out in real housing demand um, and with real constraint on, on sites. So joining together those parts of any system of government that are required to deliver these along with the asset owner because sites will always have a former use right and the person who used to use them will always have some claim or some view about what they should be used for in the future that's a that's not a unique problem here and and i think particularly the the nature of scale is that um any government any institution that's trying to create economic development needs to have full control of the levers that drive productivity that drive prosperity and i think ironically they're kind of the, the scale of the Isle of Man is well suited, right, to economic placemaking because every kind of major city in the north of England and, and the north of England collectively is desperately trying to get more of the levers from central government than it needs. Well, here, those levers all sit uh, with a, an institution that is not remote, right? And if anything, sometimes it's very hard when you've got local parliamentarians, local representatives in, in, in other parts of, of the this, this, this set of aisles to get together around an agenda. Sometimes too much local interest is the issue as well. So you need to have a strategic will at the right level of scale with the right understanding to be able to deliver schemes. That is fundamental. And those things are not specific to any one place. So how you have a common agenda for what you want to deliver, how you make sure that those developments actually happen, that is fundamental to building particularly confidence in the private sector that you're able to work and be a a reliable party and, and I would say that one of the things that have accelerated development isn't just what you do with the publicly owned sites but how do you make it a place where private developers want to do business and I get very strong signals from private investors that a place in which there is clarity and a clear will a, a sensible plan for what that place wants and a, a transactional planning system that works and is efficient and effective those are the things that incentivize people to deploy their capital in one place rather than another and in the end investors and developers can go anywhere in the world that they want to go so the fact that they came to a city like Manchester for example was to do with the circumstances they put in place and, and those things are generalizable they're not specific to any one part of the British Isles. And actually the bit that sounds easiest which is having one key uh, message uh, one, one shared vision for your particular uh, city, town, uh, island in our case um, that's often the hardest bit to deliver, isn't it? And it isn't just about governments. I think the, the value of this conference, and we have done similar activities in the north of England to bring people together, is that it can't just be the vision of government. You have to have a united vision across the private sector, across civil society, alongside um, politicians of this administration and future ones, because 
no government and no single political leader can ever achieve the type of economic change that you need if you want to change the genuine levels of prosperity in a place. Those things will always outlive one uh, administration, in, in, whether it be here or in, in the United Kingdom. Um, and the reason why the Northern Powerhouse was created was to have a vision for economic change, in that case over three decades, to close the gap between London and uh, the North West and the wider North of England. And anyone who obviously comes from Liverpool, Manchester, friends or family in those places, will realise that's quite a lofty ambition. Um, but if you do that with a credible plan to deliver it, that both politicians of different persuasions, backgrounds and administrations can all get around, people from different parts of society can all get around, then you can achieve something as ambitious as that. But you need that wider consensus. And that's why it's so welcome to see the government here talking to not just itself, but to the wider public about its ambitions and early stages they develop them rather than presenting something when it's fully formed. Because if you do that, you don't build the consensus and the buy-in to be able to build that wider vision and that wider buy-in for what you're trying to achieve. It's not often we have someone uh, coming over to the Isle of Man offering advice and, and, and help. So I'm going to ask you for your, your top three. Um, what, what would be the top three issues uh, that need to be addressed, would you say, uh, by Isle of Man government? I would always say it's not for outsiders to, to tell people here what they need to be doing or should be doing. But I think having talked to the Chief Minister over in the North West uh, and over uh, on the mainland on a number of occasions... Uh, both before he was in this role and, and previously, uh, and now as well. I think that the, the ambition here around how you can invest in those long-term drivers of productivity is the same everywhere. So I would say that regardless of whether you're here or in the north of England, the fundamental drivers are the same. So education and skills remain probably more important than anything, if I'm honest. Um, and I think the, the collaboration agenda, both looking to Ireland and the north of England, is important, and we're absolutely committed to that. Uh, and that's why I'm here, to demonstrate our support for wanting to think about this island in its wider economic context. Uh, because the same way that a city like Liverpool doesn't any longer think about its destiny just being itself or Merseyside, but it thinks about its neighbours in Newcastle, in Sheffield, uh, in Liverpool, in, in Hull, sort of that, that, that corridor across the Pennines. Well, we absolutely see the opportunities for that closer collaboration here and uh, with Ireland as well. And there are some strong economic connections that need to be strengthened further. And then I think finally, it's that global reach and impact. So clearly the north of England acts as the Isle of Man's global gateway through Manchester Airport, through other connections. And so we share that that opportunity around globalisation and around internationalisation of our proposition. So we're very much thinking about how we can attract FDI to the northern powerhouse to the north of England. But absolutely as we bring more investment and opportunities as through, through those global gateways, those are, will benefit the Isle of Man as well. And so how we ensure that here the island can benefit from those same opportunities and we can work together on those shared ambitions, I absolutely think is something critical that we can do together and certainly look forward to discussing that more with business people and others while I'm here before I go back uh, tomorrow. And can we expect to see significant change in, in a relatively short uh, period of time? I mean, three, four years would... would could we expect to see things starting to move in, in that uh, time period? I think you can start to see what we would call leading indicators. So in the case of the North of England, right, the UK government decided a few years ago it wanted to do something eight years ago about the North of England. Well, we're now several years in. You can see that on foreign direct investment, for example, a report we're publishing in the next few days uh, and hopefully be, be being published around this time, I can give you a, a sneak preview that North of England is doing a lot better on FDI uh, than it used to do. But what we don't see necessarily yet 
is uh, some of the wider productivity indicators moving everywhere. So in Greater Manchester, you, you are now closing that productivity gap with London, but we're not doing that in every part of the north of England. So there is a differential in performance, say, between Merseyside and Greater Manchester. And so if you're going to get that wider change across much wider geographies, in our case, that's taken quite a lot of time. I think one of the strengths here in the Isle of Man is that clearly you have a number of areas of what I would describe as low-hanging fruit. And you've got pro- projects and propositions which are strategic to you around, for example, medicinal cannabis, that are uh, significant transformational investments. So a number of transformational investments, when you add them together, will bring change that people will be able to perceive and feel. So, And I would always say the test you should apply, it's when we, we apply in the north of England, is do people believe that their young, the children they're having or their young people in their households will have jobs and opportunities in the place they live? If, if you can go around a community and people genuinely believe that that those in their household that aren't currently in work will be able to find good opportunities in their area then that's what's perceptively changed um, and that you can't you can't cheat that right Does that makes sense people and communities will either believe that they have a brighter future for the young people in there growing up in that community than they had or they or they won't believe it and they usually are pretty good judges of whether the economic weather is really changing um, because you pay most attention right to whether those opportunities and things that are coming to an island or to a community are going to benefit you and your family that's how you notice what's going on in your area and it's that something we discussed in there that the economy is not an abstract concept an economy is made up of people opportunities in a particular place at a particular time and if you don't have a functioning economy that can provide the opportunities for those who are growing up in a place like this or those that aspire to come here you're not going to be able to grow and be sustainable as a community and that's as true in any major city as it is here in Douglas, obviously, that now has that honour of being a city as well. So bringing lessons from metros and from agglomeration and from core cities are just as applicable in any town or city, um, particularly in an island like this that has an economic opportunity that is significant and is differentiated. Um, And it's not about just being the same, right? So the north of England has things that are special about it that are not the same as London, the same way there are lots of things like the Isle of Man, but in many ways more like a capital city like London, its ability to attract certain types of economic activity, very different to what the north of England has. So how you make the most of your functional specialisation, how you make the most of your particular assets or opportunities is the, what defines economic destiny. And if places make the right choices and make the right strategic investments to be able to specialise and achieve their own particular opportunity or make the most of their particular assets, then they're successful. Those that don't have that focus or that simply try to generically follow some sort of path that may or may not get them to where they want to go, they tend to fail. So knowing where you want to get to and then being committed to that are absolutely key. Minister, then, uh, final comment. I mean, obviously, you've got an incentive to make this work because four years' time, chances are you'll be standing in front of the people of Peel and Glen Faber looking for votes. It certainly sounds encouraging, certainly what Henry's been saying there. Um, we have the opportunity to, de- to deliver, but we do have to bring everybody with us, don't we? That's right. I think you know, this conference has been part of that conversation, and then the challenge now is just to keep that momentum going and you to build on some of the great contributions that we've had I think it's been really really worthwhile from from that perspective absolutely and obviously uh, you you have a responsibility for part of planning in in terms of planning policy DEFA has the responsibility for the actual operational side of uh, planning Uh, clearly there's going to be a lot of work for the planners to do to help uh, realize this vision that's right. You know, some of that work was already, um, you know, needing to be in train anyway. But actually, um, you know, additional resources have been applied through the funding for this program to help sort of clear some of the backlog and improve some of the resourcing. So that that kind of operational limitation and need to improve is, has been part of the, the thinking. And, and of course, the planners are, uh, 
fulfilling the role that, that is set for them by government. Um, they, what, what is needed, I, I suppose, for, if, if my understanding is right, is, is a change perhaps in the rules which the planners have been following to, uh, to give a greater incentive to developers to actually develop brownfield sites. I think that's part of the story. Um, but the, perhaps the other aspect of it is, is you know, you know, we need, you know, we need to be, be be clear in government. You know, it is it is the you know government, the politicians that, that set the policy, um, and you know sometimes that needs to change. You know, there needs to be different levers introduced, and then actually, you know, for the planning and building directorate, you know, they, they have a have a clear process, and that you know there's an interest in, in government and the sort of sponsoring department, the politicians, to make sure that there's some good um, governance and uh, transparency and accountability all, all around that, as well as providing them with the resources they need to get on with the job. But I think that some of the other initiatives will be about bringing that greater traceability in the system for how long things are taking, and um, you know, just so that everybody knows where they're at. You know, whether it's a policy basis or indeed an operational delivery point of view too. Well, it was great to, to finish on such an optimistic note uh, with the conference. Um, we can now talk about how how the conference went. Um, what were your overall impressions of the two days? Well, actually, I, th- I think, you know, the, the place has had quite a buzz around it, you know, certainly, you know, for, for some of the bigger topics, bigger policy areas that have been discussed yesterday and, and, and also today. So that felt good. Your people that attended yesterday also came back today. That tells you something. I've been talking to the officers who've been collecting some of the, the you know, the questions that were asked and the, the points that were made. So we will look at those. And, I, you know, there's definitely, I've, I was making my own notes. There's definitely things that we will take away from this, this conference. But the chance for government to set out its stall and ambition in so many policy areas I don't really think that there's been you know an, a, a previous opportunity where government in such a fulsome way has set out or been required to set out we've basically been you know this has challenged ministers to set out their stall publicly and leave themselves open to questioning so I, I think if the, there's an intention to do this again you know the expe- expectation would be to build on that and to be able to reflect on what's been what's been um, you know delivered in that time so I do think it's worthwhile and you know absolutely we will, we will learn from things and change things and you know, I think that it's been great to have the panellists involved as well and get that outside perspective that was the intention we didn't want everybody on the panel just to be saying the same thing as what government has said to you this isn't it's active encouragement of outside perspective there's a bit of a theme on in 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 government now I think which you know I certainly value as a change. There are big changes afoot, particularly if Tinwald backs the government's economic strategy. The strategy is radical, but will it drag you, the Manx public, well beyond your comfort zone? I hope you enjoyed the programme, which will be available as a podcast from Manx Radio's website. Please get in touch with Phil Gorn at manxradio.com and let me know your thoughts and views on this programme, and let me know what you would like to talk about in future programmes. But for now, I'm Phil Gorn, Gorham Myers and Gaysha Grum. Thanks for listening.